The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, shall, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make the count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Well, happy Memorial Day weekend to... All of you, and I do want to recognize, do we have, if we have any um, active or um, former uh, members of the military or armed services, do we have anybody, if you, if you would stand, uh, if you're here and have been a part of that, we... thank you very much, thank you for being here, and thank you for your service. You know, uh, Memorial Day is that. It's a, it's a day, you know, as we even were driving around, um, my children at one point were looking at the flags and extra um, uh, red, white, and blue ribbons around, and they were wondering what it was, Memorial Day, exactly what it, it means. It's to, to uh, remember, right? It's to remember uh, what those who have served uh, have done. And uh, in fact, it, it's, it's an, a very old um, old, uh, you know, celebration. It actually even goes back to, um, some say, the Civil War itself, when uh, there was more bloodshed on American soil uh, than any other. And uh, those who had died in that conflict and then, you know, several uh, wars since. But it was considered at one point to be called Decoration Day uh, because you would go and actually decorate the memorial or gravesite of those who were your loved ones or maybe even those that you were just honoring who had served in, in military uh, to care for us. And so it was a memorial, it was a remember. And some, some even say the first 
commemorators were possibly organized even by a former enslaved group in Charleston, South Carolina many, many years ago. The, a day, Memorial Day, though, is, is that, right? It's a day to remember. It's a day to, for us to remember those who have died and, and what has happened behind us and, and what goes before us, the freedom that we live in. Uh, there have been a number of articles even about this kind of thing, even days of remembrance, remembering 9-11, even those kind of events, events that, where there's great tragedy and yet great heroism. Uh, people who have run into buildings to save, people who have done all sorts of things and to commemorate and for us to remember that's really important for us to remember these things, even, even be they very difficult. May they hold a lot of tragedy. They hold great freedom and, and joy. And, you know, as we're looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, it is considered uh, the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament. It is considered in this book, uh, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, uh, the, the marquee uh, picture of redemption of God bringing his people out of slavery and into freedom, into buying them back, so to speak, out of the hand of Pharaoh. And they've been serving for four centuries and enslaved in this land and God brings them out. And if there's one thing that post those 400 years, post them being brought out of slavery that God says even before they're brought out that they're to remember what God has done. And we just read a passage um, considered the Passover where there is both incredible tragedy and beautiful freedom wrapped up into it. And the word that circulates, in fact, the only one, as you may have even seen on the title of today's sermon, the, the plagues, 10 plagues. The only plague that has any sort of memori, memori, memory, if I can speak, I speak for a living, right? Uh, or anything like that is this 10th plague, that they're to, not just after this occurs, but long after to remember it, to actually have a meal to remind them of what God has actually done in their lives. That's what the Passover is. So that in fact, when their children would grow up, they would long after be you know, in the wilderness or in the, even the promised land and they would celebrate a meal and their child would be eating that meal and say, hey, mom or dad, why, why do we do this with this lamb? And why do we eat the bread this way? And why, why do we wear this or say these things? They were to be told and reminded hey, this is to remind us of what God has done for us in history and time and space that he saved us because God redeems his people and with tragedy and with beautiful freedom. And we're gonna look at this passage in a couple ways. We're trying to sum up a number of chapters. We're gonna really hone in on these verses from chapter 12 of Exodus. And we're gonna look at first the, the judgment of the firstborn, which is the the final plague. And then second, we're going to look at the mercy of the Passover. How is it a remembrance? How, how do these two things, the judgment of the firstborn and the mercy of the Passover fit for them as people and particularly for us as Christians? What does that mean? You know, as this begins, uh, it said, the Lord said to Moses Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be 
For you, the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses and a lamb for his household. Moving from chapter 11, it starts in chapter seven, actually, these plagues unpack themselves. These plagues of judgment, right? And this is the 10th. This would be the final one. What in the world? Why, why these plagues? What were they for? I mean, if, if you know somewhat about the Exodus or maybe uh, the plagues in the Bible, maybe you've, you might be unfamiliar with the Bible, you might be familiar with the plagues. Is it God's just kind of, how do I just break Pharaoh's spirit? I mean, how do I annoy him enough or get in his, his, his ear enough or, or really get him to finally just commit? Moses, God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He didn't, I'm gonna send all these plagues on you. And why these 10, why 10 plagues? Is it just to show that God is just that a little stronger than Pharaoh or is there more to it? I remember driving back from from, uh, vacation some number of years ago, up 65 and hearing on the highway as I'm driving this, loud kind of strange noise. Didn't sound like a part of the car. Didn't sound like anything around me. It was just a, and it just was so loud. Windows up and all. We get home and I pull in the driveway and all of a sudden I open the door and I smell this awful smell and under my feet is this horrible crunching sound. Oh, it was, yes, the, what you've been reading about, the 13-year cicada cycle that happens in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, if you haven't experienced this, you're read, you may have read some articles on it now. It's supposed to happen pretty soon. So what I noticed the next morning, it was dark when we pulled in, was that around the trees were these holes and just layers. I'm talking inches deep of just dead bugs around every tree. The sound that I heard driving up was them in the trees talking. Have you ever heard the cicadas, those little in the trees? You can hear them during the summer. It was so loud and awful and so annoying that we had family visiting us and we wanted to go walk at Radnor and we couldn't even take them because they kept, and even when we went, they kept like hitting us in the face. I mean, it was just the most annoying thing. And I think often we can think of the plagues kind of like that. You think of the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of, you know, all these things. It's like, how, how many annoying things can I just send on Egypt and just show? That's what we can kind of think. What in the world is God actually doing with these plagues? In chapter seven, it says, I will multiply my signs and bring them out, God says, by acts of judgment. So are the plagues God getting to Pharaoh or are they something more? So if you look at these plagues, there's actually a pattern that's happening here. There's a pattern that judgment on Egypt is not just judgment of what can I send and God just kind of throwing anything he can of creation at them. He's actually judging their gods. You saw it a little bit in this passage in verse 12 when it talks about, it says both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt. See, what was happening was, for instance, the Nile, first plague. When the Nile was struck, and turned to blood, it wasn't just so they would go, oh, this is disgusting. And it sounds gross, doesn't it? But what he was doing, the Nile was considered one of the deified 
um, gods of fertility. So what God of heaven above was doing was saying, the God you worship of the Nile where you draw all your water from, where you see is the source of life of everything, I'm the one in control of that. The plague of frogs, let's talk about that one. This was actually a God called Heket. It was a spouse creator God. It was another God that was seen as, oh, we're, we're gonna, this is the God we worship to pr- produce in families. Okay, well, if that's the case, I'm gonna send you enough of those frogs that you think you worship to show you who's in control of sending these things all over the place you worship and also remove them. Well, over and over, this continued to happen. And the Lord is judging not just Egypt, but who they worship. He's getting to the heart of what they think really holds them, secures them. And you know, up to this point, even in chapter eight, so seven, eight, nine, ten, all these plagues come. Even in chapter eight, Pharaoh has these magicians that are kind of showing that they can produce some of these things, but only up to the fourth plague. And then after that, they kind of say, they kind of tap out. They look at Pharaoh and they say, well, we can't do this. There's something else behind this. They start to admit to God's power. And then so much so that the argument didn't just end there, it finishes with Pharaoh himself. That the Pharaoh himself was seen as a God and God wanted to show that he was the God above all gods. See, even last Sunday we talked about there were two things there when Moses approached Pharaoh and he said, thus says the Lord God, let my people go. And you know what the, the Hebrew says, thus says Pharaoh, I will not. Whose voice matters? Whose voice has authority? God is showing that above all of that, he is the one above all Egyptian gods. He's the one. And here's the thing. <clears throat> Pharaoh himself was in charge of what was called the ma'at. It was considered the harmony that the Pharaoh was the one who was to keep the harmony peace of what was creation in the land. And what God was doing systematically through the plagues over and over was to say, I'm going to do a decreation. I'm going to show you who's the one who actually did bring chaos to order in the very beginning in Genesis. Who's the one that has that authority? And he showed that Pharaoh had none of it that to the degree that they worship the order and balance and perfection of what was called the ma'at, the the harmony of all creation. If we could just get back to this, because notice every time the plague goes away, Pharaoh's like, uh, his heart's hardened. He's like, no, this is fine. Things are gone. We're gonna keep the peace. But it's not until this 10th one that his spirit breaks and the Lord proves who he really is. See, it's easy for us to look at those plagues and say, what is God doing? Is he really? But he systematically, surgically, not just in a wrath, anger, tossing things, but showing directly to the heart, who is the God that is above all gods? Who's the God that is in control? Not to worship balance and harmony, but to worship him. And and I, I think we think of it in kind of a sweet way <clears throat> that this was over the Egyptians, But just to the same degree, the Israelites have been living there 400 years. They have wanted balance and harmony. They may not 
fully absorb or take in the ma'at or the, 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 the harmonious gods of Egypt, but we see later on that it comes out of them. God isn't just showing this to Egypt. He's showing this to all of them because it would be easy for them to worship the balance and harmony more than they do God. Doesn't that sound familiar? If I just kind of have everything right in balance, how much do we want to worship the harmony and having everything set right? Everything seems to be, all the plates are spinning, all the balls are in the air, we can, we can juggle it all. But are we worshiping what seems to be going well or are we worshiping God himself? Who's the one who's really king? As we even pray and that Lord's prayer, when we pray for thy kingdom come, what we're also praying is my kingdom go. We're praying for not our will to be done, but his will. And that is incredibly difficult when it comes to the life that we want to have that seems to be in perfect harmony and balance. What makes this 10th plague different than all the others is that for significant reasons, God actually takes Aaron and Moses out of being the mediators. All the other plagues were that, but he removes them and then he says, differently than the other ones. He says, you're gonna eat unleavened bread, you're gonna put your clothes on, you're gonna get everything wrapped up because it's gonna happen just like that. You're gonna fasten your belt because it's gonna happen in haste. And what's gonna happen is gonna be memorialized for years to come because this plague wouldn't just be over in earlier plagues that separated Egypt and, and Israel, hail would come down and it would only affect the land or cattle or, or parts of the Egyptians and not the Israelites. This plague would be over the entire land, all of it. Egypt and Israel alike. And there's only one thing that would set them apart. One thing, it would be the Passover. And here's what the Passover would be, the mercy of that Passover. It, there's a lot of discussion in this about <clears throat> the lamb being selected. In fact, half this passage is taken up with this lamb, a lamb without blemish. I mean, you can't bring any sort of lamb. You have to take a lamb that would not be euthanized or anything that would be messy on this lamb. It had to be the lamb that was right. It, would, it had to be without defect. Uh, as our uh, home and other homes on our street flooded, lots of adjusters, insurance adjusters, maybe this is a job that you do, I've dealt with a lot of adjusters the last uh, months. And one of the things that's interesting is they, they walk through a home, especially in flood time, they give a lot of opinions on what has or hasn't been affected by water. Uh, what has or hasn't been touched by it? What's been absorbed in it? Uh, what kind of water it is? Uh, is it just regular water? There's things like categories, you know, of different kinds of water. I'm learning way more than I need to. And cat three water, which is polluted water, which anything it touches, whether it's absorbed or not, pollutes that part of the house. So they're going in and looking at what's good, what's not. And you can get an, a different adjuster to come in the same house and have a million different opinions about it to look at flooring or, 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 or subfloor or base plates or furniture or whatever it is. And you can see lines 
But they may have differing opinions. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that one of the adjusters said is, as they come into the house, you know, they were coming maybe even months later. They could say, we could go to a house no matter what time it is, but the house doesn't lie. So to the degree that you could say, well, it touched this or touched that, the same way, but the house doesn't lie. The house is gonna show you what the water has actually done and where it's been and how, how it's affected it. And it's interesting as you read this about this emphasis on this lamb without defect, this lamb who's about to be a blemish. Why a lamb without blemish? Because to the degree that they needed a lamb without blemish, they had blemish that they may or may not have known that they needed covered. To, to bring a lamb without blemish was to be a substitute. This lamb was to be the one who substituted for them. Verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts, the two doorposts of the lentils of the house in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. That this lamb was to be a substitute for them. So that, that the firstborn, that essentially there was going to be death across the entire land of, of Egypt. Israel, in, a, in, in every household. But it was either going to be the firstborn or the lamb. One of the two. And to bring that lamb, imagine this, imagine your family and you're thinking and you're, and you're a family of Israelites and you've been told what you need to do is take this lamb and, and to walk through this process in order for you to have a substitute for your firstborn, be it you, be it your child, be it some, someone else in your family. You would think about all the blemishes that need to not be on that lamb, wouldn't you? You would take inventory as much as possible to say, gosh, am I? Or would you possibly look? Maybe you would look next door. Maybe they did this. Maybe they thought of the house next door to them and they thought, man, they, that house, they need, they need maybe two lambs. I mean, they need a lot of lambs. Or maybe you look at yourself or look at someone else. Maybe they were looking in the land of Israel thinking of someone else and thinking, man, they're such a sweet family. They, how would they need a lamb for this? They probably have few blemishes that they need covering. But see, it doesn't matter. It's about the whole. There's a passage in Malachi, uh, probably a book you'll all read regularly. Malachi, it's the last book right before the New Testament. Talks about polluted offerings and why. Why a lamb without blemish? Listen to what it says, verse 6 Chapter one of Malachi, it says, but you may say, how have we despised your name? They're talking about God. It's a conversation with him. And God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have I, we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift of your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? He uses a lesser argument even, the Lord does. He says, would you bring this kind of a gift to someone 
who's of great stature in your community? How much more of God? Because God, here's the point. God is without defect. God is without blemish. And it does not matter whether you recognize all of your blemishes or not. Because that's really the point, right? Most of it may be easy. And a lot of us may go, God, I have a lot of blemishes. We, we live in a culture in an age where we can use any filter to remove as best the blemishes that we want to in any sort of way. But we also want to do that in reality. A, a, a lamb that would cover their blemishes, all the ones that they are aware of, all the ways that they thought, man, I have worshiped the gods of Egypt just as much. I have worshiped and I wanted the harmony that Egypt has because I've been under slavery. I, God, God thank you for giving me this lamb. I, I have a lot of blemishes. But do you know what else the blemishes of this lamb cover? Having a lamb without blemish doesn't just cover the ones that they know about, it's the ones in which they don't recognize how good they think they are. See, offering this is to the degree you offer a lamb without blemishes, to the degree you think how holy God is and how much of his mercy that you need. See, it didn't matter whether they were in their house and they thought, man, we've really... We're a family that does family devotions regularly. Maybe if we just have some of the lamb and that's fine. Or maybe we can just, you know, we're, we're next door to some people that have a lamb. Maybe we can just kind of be next to them and be okay. They couldn't depend on their own goodness. This is the distinctive marker. This is deliberate separation that the the separation had to come through the lamb, not through the firstborn. It was either the firstborn's death or the lamb's death. Whose was it gonna be? And the lamb had to be without blemish. It's even those moments when you have an inkling, a temptation to look at something on your computer and you would love to look at that. You would love to look at that and you withhold and you don't. You need a lamb without blemish. It's the moments where you are in your work and you have the opportunity to kind of work your way up, maybe cut a corner here and there and no one would ever notice. Maybe get to another level of sorts, be it of position, of power, or even monetary, and you don't do it. You, you kind of hold back and you take the high ground. Even those moments, you need a lamb without blemish. There was no household in Israel that was under the Egyptian slavery that could say, you know what, we've been enslaved. We deserve to be just looked up. Pass over us, God. They had to have a lamb without blemish. No rights, no goodness. What does this lamb tell them? They don't just need an animal without defect. They needed a man without defect. They needed a man without defect. First Peter chapter one, later in the New Testament would say this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot.
We need Jesus, not just in the ways that we think we need him, and that we do. <laughs> there are so many ways in my own head that I list that I think that's, I need him here and there. It's also in the ways that we go about our day and we think we're okay. We need a lamb without blemish. Because even those moments where we hold back, where we find the high ground, where we think we're not disliking someone that we would love to dislike or hate on them, and we withhold or we hold our tongue. Maybe we haven't gotten all angry or hot-tempered this week with our kids or our spouse or ourselves. We need a lamb without blemish. We need to be covered. We need a man without defect, the only one who has done this. And did you notice that the whole lamb is consumed here? I think that's interesting that it's not just a lamb without blemish, that they have to not only eat it in a specific way, roasted, all its parts, but let none of it, verse 10, none of it shall remain until the morning. Anything that remains, you shall burn. It is to be completely consumed, every part. Why? Because in order for us to know the mercy of the Passover, the whole of us has to be taken into the whole of this lamb. All of that lamb was consumed by God's wrath and judgment in order for us to have all of the mercy and grace that we are to have. There's not a part left over. Even the parts left over to be burned so that we know we're taken up. All of us and all of it. And then the blood would be distinct. What makes them distinct? What separates them from anybody else? They could go through the whole process of eating the lamb. They could go through the whole process of being a part, saying, this is great, I love this feast, I'm gonna celebrate it, I look forward to it. But unless they did what? Put the blood on the doorposts, it didn't apply. It actually didn't apply. You could go through the entire process. Bread, clothing, lamb, burning the rest of it. But unless you applied with a bowl, they would literally fill with the blood from the lamb and take hyssop and wipe it up and down on the doorposts and on the lintel above. There was not an application of that. How did God actually see them? How did, why is it called the Passover? Because he didn't pass over just because they ate the lamb. He passed over because when he saw the blood on the doorposts, the way that he saw them, what made them distinct, different than any other plague, was the way that God saw them was through the blood alone. It was only through the blood. What do we think makes us distinct? What do we think makes us separated? Is it going through the motions of things? Is it feeling like, man, we've made it through this week and I've, I've been able to spend some time in the Bible? And those are beautiful things. I'm here. Maybe you've attended regularly at church, but is it what separates us, what actually sets us apart, what actually makes 
us distinct when we say we're Christians is not the stances we take, not the things we say, not the list of duties that we've completed throughout the week. It's only through the blood of Jesus, only. Centuries ago, a, an author who wrote this incredible book on our faiths it's called God's Way of Peace, a book for the anxious. <laughs> Talk about those who are anxious. His name's Horatio Bonner. Isn't that a great, Horatio. Sounds like a guy from centuries ago. He said this, you seem to think that it is your own act of faith that is to save you, forgetting everything about yourself, your faith, your frames, your repentance, your prayers, and look at him. It is in him and not at your poor act of faith that salvation lies. It is in him and in his boundless love that you're to find a resting place. Out of him, not out of your exercise of soul concerning him, that peace is to come. Looking at your own faith will only minister to your self-righteousness. Centuries ago written, and yet so beautifully applicable to us. How much do we want to find any distinction for who we are outside of that blood that is put on us? What sets us apart? Look, when we come to this meal, we are actually doing an act of remembrance, a commemoration in a sense. This is a table of remembering. But here's the difference. It's not just a dormant table. It's actually an active table. This is an active table that proclaims what we're actually seen through. For all the ways that we want to be seen, all the ways that we think we are distinct or wish we were distinct, you bring them to this table and when you actually taste the body and blood of the one who John the Baptist, and if you can imagine him when Jesus approached and he just cried out, behold, the Lamb of God. That we see ourselves in any other way other than through Jesus, we miss it. This is an active table because by faith, just as the faith that those Israelites had to trust that God's eyes would see them through the blood of that Lamb, they had to trust by faith. Can you imagine sitting in those homes, hearing the cry? It would have been an agonizing, tragic evening. Horrible, in a sense. And yet by faith, trusting that their distinction, their love, the only thing that separates them from their Egyptian neighbors is the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. That's what we believe at this table, that God does something that all of us need to hide in. He strikes down his firstborn so that we might not be. If you have never believed or trusted or put your faith in the Lord Jesus, and maybe you trust in your goodness. Maybe there's enough. You're like, I, I think there's a God. I believe that he's great. I believe that, that Jesus is amazing like no other, but, but you still put trust in what Horatio Bonner said, your own frames, your own framework of what you think this life should look like, your balances, your precision. 
And I would encourage you to come to the one that only God sees you through, through Jesus. And if you're here and you would say, I do trust in him, I do follow him, that you would be reminded at this meal, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And would you come again as you taste how the only way that you're seen through the eyes of the Lord himself see you as spotless, without blemish, because you're seen through the one, the only one who's without defect, that is in Jesus.